and welcome to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. Join us for interviews, updates and chat with artists, influencers and those that manufacture the gear that we love. Hello and welcome to 9 to 42, which is the podcast from the guys at the Guitar Show UK. And my very good friend Jace Hunt is is on screen as normal. Jace, how the devil are you? I'm okay, Ant. I'm a little bit depressed uh, because of Charlie Watts dying yesterday, um, which is kind of... was the end of rock and roll, really, isn't it? End of days. The uh, Did you see that Keith had put something out i don't know if it was on instagram or uh, yeah. it was just the, the the drum kit with a, a closed sign hanging on it and, yeah uh, and it feels a bit like that doesn't it i mean it, uh he's he's the heart of that band uh, yeah and i just finished reading the weird thing is the night before i just finished reading sympathy for the drummer which is a great book about charlie i mean it's written from a, a drummer's perspective about charlie's drumming really and a lot of the technical aspects i didn't quite understand um, but I got nothing but respect for him, and he is the kind of the swing and the roll of the Rolling Stones, or was the swing and the roll of the Rolling Stones. And you know, I mean, I, we talked about it yesterday. I really hope they just knock it on the head now. It's yeah. just, you know, it, it was Charlie's band all along. Well, that's what Keith kept saying. So you know, without Charlie, there is no band. Yeah, I, I have to say, I agree. And I was just about to rip the piss out of you wearing the same T-shirt three podcasts on the on, and I don't feel I can now um, with that with that slightly melancholic start. Anyway, uh, we'll we'll raise it a gear. Uh, we've got Jason Howe from Road to Sound with us, uh, which is a, which is a treat. Uh, how are you, Jace? I'm really good, thanks, guys, and uh, very um, very good to be here. Um, nice to be asked. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, yeah, all, all good, really. Well, I, I mean, I wanted you on this podcast for. For quite a while, because uh, you know uh, your company, Rotosound, I think started in the late fifties, fifty eight, something like that. I've got Which, paperwork, yeah. Sorry, to fifty five when my dad's written this letter, and I've got it here in the cupboard. It says I'm looking for wire to make strings, so I can I can date the very start to nineteen fifty five, October, I think. Which um, kind of puts you, I think. Certainly from our world, the rock and roll world. I mean, you're right there at the birth of rock and roll from the mid-50s, obviously. But are you the the oldest British MI rock and roll industry kind of company? I guess Marshall has got to be... But Marshall I'm, is celebrating their 60th anniversary yeah. next year. And, and if you go 55, I think you're, what, 60, uh, 68? 65 years old, something like that? Yeah. Well, it it would have to be said that um, it would, yeah, it would look that way. Um, 1955, the world out there was very different from 10 years on to 1965. I think my dad went through quite a big transition, being a violinist and zither player, to to having John Entwistle turn up in his uh, Batmobile at the factory. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, in 1965 yeah so how how did let, let's start at the beginning really how how did your dad start why did your dad start Rotor Sound it all started with a film called The Third Man starring Anton Karras and uh, Orson Welles actually sorry, starring Anton Karras Anton Karras was the guy that played the zither which is that famous bit of music you'll know called the Harry Lyme theme which mm. is da 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 you know and they're walking through the streets in, in Vienna, I think. It's a spy movie. But he heard that uh, piece of music and he was like, well, I like that. What instruments that played on? And found out that it was played on a zither, which, uh, you know, is is no more popular today than it was back in 1955. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's like the size of a, a large breadboard with about 50 strings on it. Mm. And it's a it's a very complex instrument to play because you've got to you've got to hold the chords down with your left hand. You've got like five strings. Um, you play the chords with your left hand. You have a, a a finger pick on your thumb, your right thumb, and you're picking the melody like you would on a guitar. But then your four fingers on your right hand are picking out the bass notes on um 
on another bunch of strings that um, they don't. They're not fretted. They're basically just open strings. But it's it's a complicated instrument to play. Um, but anyway, the story of why he started Road Sound was that he bought these instruments, broke strings, couldn't find strings. So initially, he bought more zithers. Um, oh yeah, I need to set a string, so I just buy. It's like, it's like oh, I've, I've broken a guitar string, so I go and buy another guitar. I think we can all but, relate to that. Yeah, but so so he ended up. So he told me we like hundreds of these zithers with various different strings missing, but one zither which I have here, I've got about twenty, but I've got one that's his favourite, which he kept with complete string sets on and I think he thought why don't I make strings for all the other zithers and then sell the zithers hmm. with complete string sets and there was born a, a string company wow and because he was an engineer working at um, Vicar, Vickers Armstrong's in Woolwich South East London um, you know he, what I heard what he told me is that he would go to work every day with a big case like a big satchel thing and in his lunch breaks and after work he'd be making bits for the string machine that he was building in his shed so every night he would walk home with another bit that he'd made and after about three years he had his first machine <laughs> basically he stole uh, <laughs> enough material probably from, yeah this is about three he years probably subsidised yeah but um, so yeah and that would have been the late 1950s um and the first company was called Orchestral and Jazz Strings because it was the late 50s. And it was, uh, you know, zither strings, violin strings because he played the violin. Mm. I've got all his notes. And then in the early 60s, it became Rotop, which was Roto. But it was originally, before that, he wanted to call it the brand Top Strings but couldn't register the word top. Right. So it was Roto. It was the set, Roto from round, Latin round, Top Strings. And then in 1963, it became Roto Sound. Ah. And that you could register because it's a unique uh, yeah, yeah. name. That's, so that's it, really. So, so <laughs> then I suppose you, you transition, you know, you, you've, you, you come out of that sort of, I suppose, at the time, the popular music, whilst you still would have had Cliff Richard in the late 50s and the shadows and so on it's a very early sort of like birth of british rock and roll but by the time you've moved into the mid 60s of course you've got the beatles and the stones and probably the who and and kinks and so on so how did your dad kind of break into that world well i think from what i gather um john entwistle i think the initial thing was he was looking for strings for his dan electro bass um and he couldn't get the sound he wanted. So I think my dad made him some of these round wound strings up, and which were the first kind for bass guitar because they were all flat wound before that. Mm. And John went to the factory and um, tried the strings and said, yeah, these sound great, but I think we can make this string a bit thicker, you know, and that one a bit thinner, and that one we need a bit less tension on the core. And, you know, the stories I hear, heard, were um, my dad was there like half the night with John. My dad was on the machine making strings and John was there with his bass trying them and they were just chucking all these strings around until they got the the set that John was really happy with. And, and they that's what became Swing 66, swing, is it? Swing Bass 66, yeah. <coughs> um, so are they the first manufactured round-wound bass strings sort of like in the world yeah that's 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 what i'm yeah that's that's how it um how i'm i know it yeah so before that it was all flat rounds and um thumpy bass lines you know <laughs> so was your dad was your dad making flat wound strings then anyway I, yeah I, I, he was already making bass strings which yeah what, what brought john round to knock on yeah the he was making flat wounds uh and actually i think just before the round wounds he was making the black nylon bass strings which were made for the burns bison bass um but the the other thing with the black nylon strings which is quite important in our history is that he also had a lot of people coming to him saying i've got this new fender bass 
like it's electric bass and I've got my double bass and I'm going to gigs and I'm having to take my double bass for these songs and my electric bass for these songs because the music was transitioning. And my dad said, well, why don't I make you a set of electric bass strings that sound like your double bass strings? And that was the true bass. The black nylon strings were made from 1962. Um and of which were made famous by a lot of people, you know, Paul McCartney, the last two years of the Beatles. Those strings are on Abbey Road um, and they're on Let It Be, that album. In fact, if you look at the sessions on the top of the Apple building, you can see the black nylon strings have a very... Um, the, the silk at the end is yellow. Mm. And you can see, you know, you can see those strings on Paul's bass. So they were quite an important product, but they were they were out before the round rounds in nineteen sixty two. What was your childhood like? If if people like John Entwistle are rocking up to the factory, and I'm assuming as a child, as a small child, you were going to the factory as well. Well, he would have been there when I was born, so I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> but but I do um, I do remember. If, if you're asking me about my childhood memories. I think the first band I went to see would have been in the early 70s and it would have been Yes. Right. And it would have been, yeah, Chris Squire because obviously, he, you know, he was using our strings. So I remember that. I remember that and I think I remember crying because it was probably really loud. Probably <laughs> the start of the tinnitus, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, I remember... Um, so, yeah, that, that I don't remember... The rock star thing is a handful I remember. Um, I don't ever remember meeting John Entwistle as a kid, mm. uh, but I probably did. Um, and loads in between, so, yeah. When would you have started remembering who you met, what, from the mid-70s onwards? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I didn't go to... I didn't get involved, you know, in the business. I mean... I remember my dad building the new factory in Bexley Heath in 1971. I remember playing with the bricks with my cousin outside the factory. But, you know, he kept the business pretty separate to my home life, I think, you know. Mm. And I don't think at the time, I, you know, till I started getting into music, till I was like 12 or 13, he was bringing albums home. You know, he bought home vinyl, which I've still got today, like Reckless Eric on brown vinyl. You know, um, Stiffs with, you know, Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, mm. Ian Jury, Reckless Eric, Larry Wallace. Uh, he bought the first two jam albums home. I remember him bringing a bunch of ELO albums home in the mid-70s. Um, you know, but he wasn't into that music. So he probably just thought, oh, I'll be into it. Yeah. So I'll let him have the vinyl, you know. Um and that, so that was really, that was my first introduction, I guess, when I was 10 or 12, hmm. you know. So I'm assuming, because I've seen, I've seen photographs, um, I, I think on social media, of like your, your dad at sort of like NAMM shows in Chicago and stuff like that. Yeah. That would have been the sort of like 60s and 70s. Uh, yeah, mid, late 60s, yeah. I mean, I, I just can't, I can't imagine what, you know, you go from working from Vickers so running your own company and all of a sudden you're in Chicago and stuff like that. It must have been like a a really weird transition. And I can't imagine many people of our age had dads that were, you know, flying off to the States for for work and stuff. Yeah, it was always like, um, yeah, my dad's pretty cool, you know. Because, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it was funny because it was my childhood. It was just normal. It was just yeah. like, well, that's what he does. I mean, I spent more time as a kid in the garage helping him take Bugatti engines out of his cars you know and doing motocross with him because he liked motorbikes and mm. um, so I think my I probably got more out of my engineering I got more from engineering out of my dad uh, you know than than the business but you know um, that's what I remember from my childhood and I you know so yeah that was it was it the technical side of it that drove your dad then? Because by, by the sounds of things, it wasn't the music, you know, the, the people that started coming along through the 60s. The, the musical side of it didn't really 
talk to him from from what you've said so was it was it just the technical aspect of being able to produce something that did a job for somebody it was it it, yeah it was about it was all about making a product that the the players the artists were happy with you know Jimi hendrix wanted these gauge strings so my dad said well i'll make you those and i guess at the time you know what did we have in the uk as far as string companies go uh there was probably British music strings that were down in Wales, um, Picato, I think, wherever they were, and wrote sound in South East London with a whole shed load of bands like Pink Floyd, The Who, Jimi Hendrix, all in London. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of like, well, where do we go to get our strings? Well, is this company down in Kent, that just up the road from Vox, they yes. can make you the strings you want. And, you know, now... Everything's been developed, designed or stolen from other companies. But back then, it was a pioneering time. Mm. And it was like, um, you know, as I think the Ernie Ball story goes, you know, people were taking banjo strings and putting them on their guitars. And then, so, you know, it was um, it was an interesting time. And the company owners and, and what have you were... In the string business, a lot of them were engineers, so a lot of them could solve those problems because they they had the knowledge to to build the machinery or buy the materials that the artists wanted. So I think my dad's biggest um, passion was, you know, he was proud of the fact that John Entwistle was going off to America with 50 sets of swing bass um, or that Roger Waters was recording Dark Side of the Moon and using our flat wounds and still uses our flat wheels, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a lucky time, but it's also the fact that the, the, the really most important thing here is our bass strings are made a certain way and they sound a certain way. And no other company, I know quite a bit about how other string companies make strings, and they don't do things the same way as we do. And there's certain elements of making them, especially with the bass strings that give the strings a certain sound and tone. And I've built enough machines now to know how to keep all those old elements from the old machines and incorporate them into the new machinery. Yeah, we, um, we were so, talking uh, before you came on, uh, me and Ant, and you know, it felt like for quite a while, every time I phoned you, someone would answer the phone and go, he's on the shop floor underneath the machine. <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah. not what I expect from it's the last uh, 20 years <laughs> you know someone who runs a, a, a company so when when did you join Rotosound well, I'll just put it right here because my wife runs the company really <laughs> I'm just the oily rag no my wife runs all the production she's um, you know yeah. much more organised than I am this is true you know what they say behind every successful <laughs> what do they say but no Kathy Kathy really I mean she's um, I, I'm you know I'm pretty good at doing that mechanical stuff but she's the person that organises everything you know which has allowed me to get on and build the machines yeah did you leave did you leave school and go straight into the family business or you know did you go off and do something else no, I went to work for uh, an engineering company I went to college in the late 80s did my BTEC whatever it is yeah. Um, in, in mechanical and production engineering because my dad said to me go and learn how to make stuff you know and um, for a company like ours that was probably the best thing I could have done really because uh, it's a, a sk- and obviously now it's a skill that's becoming even less prevalent mm. although I think um, with things as they are maybe a lot of the UK will start to realise that some of the manufacturer needs to come back home but we know it never left for us, so um, you know. Yeah. So how old how old were you when you jumped back into Rotosand? I was I come back in really in about nineteen ninety two. My dad died in ninety four, and I had my brother. Um, you know, I think you met my brother, didn't you? I did sure years you, ago. Years ago. I mean, he's he's not here now. He's still a shareholder in the business, but he's not actually here. But um, you know. My brother would be even more interesting to talk to because he goes back even further with the company and he remembers, he would remember John Entwistle mm. being at the factory because he's 15 years older than me. But um, 
so yeah, it was the mid nineties that I got involved, and I just had my vision of what I thought the company needed. You know, rightly or wrongly, it don't, I don't think it served us too badly. You know, but um, like like anything, you're never satisfied, are you? It's like, well, we've done this, but we should have done that. Or you know. yeah, I mean, you, I think that you know anybody that runs their own business. I mean, mine is considerably smaller than yours. But at the same time, every time I finished a guitar show, I'm like, yeah, that was all great, but I only ever see the bits that I could have improved upon. And you go, well, next year I'm going to put them right. And then you do the next show, and then you go, but that bit was wrong. And it's just like this constant desire to actually try and get the perfect show, uh, you know, which will never happen. I call it nailing a blancmange to the ceiling. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Somebody says, what do you do? And I'm just like, yeah, that sums it up. From what you've just been saying, then is it the same thing? Is it a similar thing that drove your dad that drives you? Are you is 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 rotor sound for you, or in its purest form, is it is it you solving problems? You know, through engineering. So, well, it, I can find a solution to this. I can help that person overcome or get the sound they're looking for. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, with the strings, um, I try not to change too much because I think the track record of certain string sets is so ingrained in the music business and in and on albums you know i'm thinking well what am i going to do to improve that i don't i just need to make it more efficiently yeah. and more consistently and promote it better i don't need to come up with a new product although we try you know we come out with new materials and stuff the core product is always the most important thing mm. so we just try and improve that really um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're all trying to, you know, get people, make people happy with what, if they want this or they want that, we obviously try and help out, you know. Bring it forward a little bit then. Uh, and I suppose there's two things. One you've kind of alluded to, and obviously the other one is, is kind of the elephant in the room anyway. Um, firstly... Uh, how's how's the pandemic been? Did you see a huge upturn in in demand through the pandemic? We actually, um, it's when I look at our figures, we're up this year. We're up. It's the end of our financial year this month. We're up a good percentage, double figures. Um, it's been surprisingly good. I've I have to say. I mean, when I when like all of us, we heard that live music was being knocked on the head. I think everybody panicked, and uh, but I think that equally the number of people that were playing live music have probably just gone home and played music, or gone online, done video, Zoom calls, uh, been writing at home, recording at home, and I don't think it's really, you know, it's like the, I think with our industry, with the music industry, everybody's so passionate, you know, you'd really have to do, I'd, people are still going to play music whatever happens they're still going to pick the guitar up um so i think we've been quite fortunate um we've pretty much worked all the way through manufacturing has been uh, allowed to stay open so it's been pretty much uh, business as, as usual for us hmm. and obviously there's been a lot of new new people pick up instruments as well either a lot of yeah. lapsed musicians or a lot of uh, of people who've it's been something they've wanted to do and yep. and they've needed a space in time to do it and obviously the you know being locked away at homes allow people to do that yeah that's right i mean i was at the dentist the other week and rob my dentist said to me i've just got the guitar out of the loft you know um so i think there's been a lot of that going on um so yeah, I think the number of string sets consumed, I think, has probably not really changed a lot. Mm. Um, we've had some very good business from other countries. Japan's been very good. South America's been very good. Um, so yeah, I think everybody's um, managed to stick stick with that or improve it. You know, Brexit is obviously the other. Uh, now, now you you know you like you say you your manufacturing's at in the UK. So so a lot of companies have been hit by trying to get product in from overseas, which obviously isn't an issue for you, but I, I don't know where you are in terms of what raw materials or anything that you rely on. Has it, has, you know, Brexit affected? Has that, you know? It's, well, I, I actually, um, one of our directors, John, he retired last October and I took over a whole bunch of his work. And one of the jobs that he did was buying all the raw materials. Um, 
So I kind of made it my plan from last year because of all the ups and downs, upheavals with shipping. I made it my sort of goal to stock up big time on, on raw materials. You know, we buy our raw materials from about 10 or 20 countries, 10 or 15 countries. Um, a small amount from Europe, some in the UK, some from the States and some from other places. Oddly enough, you know, silk that goes on the strings comes from Bulgaria. Um, but there's not been, um, there's been an increase in shipping costs because I've, I've gone from some stuff that I would bring in by sea freight, I've opted to bring it in by air freight just to be doubly sure. Um, Brexit I, hasn't really been an issue, but I don't think B2B has been affected. I think B2C businesses have been affected. If you're retailing into Europe, I think that's been yeah, that's a been different massive. story. Hmm. But B2B, I've not had any... Um, you know, we've had, we've had hold-ups, we've had some delays in bringing in the distribution products we bring in from Holland. Uh, but that's pretty much settled down now. Um, so, yeah, we, we've been dodging the bullets and it's been, um, it's, it's, it's been OK. It's not been a, too much of an issue. Um, as I say, I think supply chain, uh, this has shown up weaknesses in supply chains, and which has always been something with the manufacturing, I thought, we must never let go of the manufacturing because it's absolutely so key. Mm. And um, I think it's, it's shown itself to be right through the last uh, 15 or 16 months, you know. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, you, you managed to keep good stocks of, uh, good stocks of everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got, you know, over six months of raw material stocks here. Mm. So I'm, I'm just trying to keep everything, yeah, keep it as... Um, we haven't run out of stock of anything string-wise um, throughout the last 15 months. So. And what about, because the other hot topic is sustainability. You know, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't know um, whether string production was good or bad for the planet in, in, in that respect. I mean, is it, is it an area where, is that something Rotosound are thinking about? Is there, is, we, you know? Well, we, we jumped onto that in 2014. We started producing guitar strings and bass strings with the most minimal packaging across the whole of the string business. Mm. Since 2014, our guitar strings and bass strings are packaged, our packaging weight is three grams. All our competitors are 25, 30 grams. We have a foil pack and inside that foil pack is six strings mm. with a desiccant. Um, and I think we are the only string company that does that. We don't use paper, we don't use cardboard. Um, so our packaging has been, since 2014, the most minimal across the whole of the string business. Mm. You say so six we, strings. Have you, yeah. have you ditched the uh, additional E string now then? Seven, sorry. <laughs> and only four with bass, Jason. <laughs> yeah, I, so we're quite proud of our... Um, you know, and this this is one way of uh, of looking at this is when we export, for example, to whatever country. We used to be able to get three hundred sets of guitar strings in our export carton. Hmm. We now get over six hundred wow. in the same space. Hmm. So I think, as far as um, sustainability, we've 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 tried to take it as far as we can. You know, we can't go to any less packaging than we're at. No. Mm. And I can't believe that some of these other companies are still, you know, using multiple options to package something that... What do you do the minute you take all your strings out of the packs? You just throw the packaging away. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think, you know, when, when I was a kid, it was really handy having them in their individual um, envelopes. You know, this is a 10, this is a 12, yep. whatever. Because I used to, A, not be able to afford to buy a new set of strings very often. Uh, and B, you know, um, I was probably playing cheap guitars with cheap bridges, which were snapping the odd strings or something. And I'm playing like an elephant because I'm 12 <laughs> or 13. So that was really useful. But now as an adult, I don't ever, I haven't broken a string for years. And, and I, you know, when I change my strings, I just change all of them. Yeah. You know, so like, yeah. Um, I, 
There is that argument, you know, I think some of the other companies, you know, um, I think some of the other companies still want to keep the individual string packs, but individual envelopes, but mm. I think it was quite a bold step to take, but um, I think eventually it's going to get to that. I think eventually it will, I think people will start thinking, you know, why am I buying these strings with, you know, but not all the string companies use envelopes, as, as you know, but... Um, some of them do, um, and it's whatever works for those companies, you know. I don't think um, if we use envelopes, it's going to help our sales, I think. And we might have lost a few people that like having strings in envelopes to throw away. But I, don't <laughs> I can remember the very last time I broke a string, and I was on stage, uh, and it was a, be a working men's club somewhere in South Yorkshire. And I snapped a I snapped a string, and it was at that point in time there was two of us in this duo, and I used to, as it happened the next song was one that Paul did on his own, um, <laughs> so I was going off stage anyway. So I went off stage with my guitar, and and I'd got a spare set of strings, and I changed this string, and I'm there messing about and doing what I'm doing, and I'd forgotten to switch my wireless pack off because I got in my head I was oh, too yeah. I was too wound up with the idea of broken a string. So the normal things I would do when I went off stage I'd forgotten to do. So I'm I'm there backstage doing my thing and what have you and, and come back on stage and I walk back on and the entire audience is looking at me. <laughs> and, my, and and Paul my, uh, just 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 looked at me and just went, Thanks, mate. Uh, he'd been doing whatever ballad he'd been doing. <laughs> With you in the background, uh, and there's me in the background going, and he's just you walk back on to normally I used to walk back on, and they'd be applauding him because he'd just finished whatever whatever he was doing. He used to do some heartfelt ballad or what have you, and uh, and, and and it was just you could have heard a pin drop, and he, and he was just looking thunder at me, and that was the last time I broke a, a, a guitar string. Um, so uh, yeah, I've, yeah, I've got it, that memory imprinted. It's um yeah it's uh, it's it is a difficult thing isn't it I mean I I've, I've been out a bit lately and uh, I'll always take a spare acoustic now kind of uh... <laughs> <laughs> Well I used to but, so... I used to ha- I used to have two guitars and then I got to the point where it's like it's just not worth it I don't need it for sounds or anything and I used to do it because I used to have my my second guitar was in open tuning uh, and actually, as it, as it worked out, uh, which was for the, we we finished off a set with um, with with brown sugar, and uh, and I used to pop it into open tuning for and he used to and I got to the stage where I could do it while he was chatting, and then we were at a, we were at the end of a set, so I just changed it back through the the thing. So I stopped taking yeah. an extra guitar, as you know, when you gig and you've only got an amount of space, and it was like I'm taking an extra guitar for one song. I don't need to. Yeah. So at that, yeah. at that point, I'd gotten because, like, you know, I would have just picked up the, the the other one, but yeah, but yeah, but I forgot well, to switch it off, and it's just howling through the PA. Yeah, I mean, I I think getting back to the packaging, I think um, you know when we changed over, we had a few people complain, but um, generally, I think they all went with it, and I think now it's like uh, you know, are are our customers maybe the younger customers going to be more critical of maybe companies that aren't using the least amount of packaging than they were 10 years ago i think i think um i think that may be the case but um it works for us Mm. and also it um the other problem is is if you if you use any kind of paper up against wire uh you're going to end up with corrosion at some point Mm. um so we didn't want to put paper in with wire we just Mm. wanted to get rid of that whole issue so you know but whatever whatever works for each company really well well, where you are right is that consumers are going to they they're they will change the attitudes of companies anyway because they will start demanding um sustainable options uh and product that's that's as sustainably sourced and, and manufactured as possible so i think to be ahead of that curve is you know is 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 great because nobody's going to get left behind on this um, long term you know I mean maybe the the box packaging might look a bit prettier I, I don't know I mean oh, does anyone really care I mean it is literally something you just rip open well exactly you know mm-hmm. you're going to throw away three grams as opposed to 25 grams I mean that yeah. all adds up when you're selling tens of thousands of sets of strings you know we were we were buying these paper envelopes and I mean 
shipping tons of paper envelopes, put strings in them, send them to a customer, throw away the paper envelope. I mean, it's <laughs> well, and I think the point the point of my little story was it's that long since I changed an individual string. To Jason's point, you can, yeah. you know the the audience who change who who change the sets of string not out of necessity in terms of because they're broken a string, but because actually you want to you know it's maintenance for your guitar and and your sound and your tone is far far higher um you know i i in my own head i can't think that it's any more than maybe 10 percent who change because they break and 90 percent who change because they, they need a new set of strings um yep. you know i can't I, I don't break strings um you know and i've never really come across anybody who said to me oh yeah i break strings all the time you know no it's going to happen it is going to happen occasionally but um you know hopefully not that often and not when you're in the middle of a gig, anyway. No, I went to see. Uh, I went to see my mate. He was playing uh, a gig local, and um, and uh, I got there, and they were just just starting. So I was stood leaning at the bar, um, and I'd had like a sip of my Guinness, and he broke a string, and he's staring at me with all these people watching him, and he's going, "Mate, mate," like m- miming, "Mate, mate, mate." So gets to the end of the song and he just hands me his guitar, goes and gets his spare. So I end up he's being his bloody roadie <laughs> and I'm in the gents of this pub trying to put in his but I haven't got a tuner, got a band at full tilt, and I'm like tension feels about right, yeah. that'll have to do. <laughs> he can tune it up with his tuner yeah. when I get there, but um, That's yeah. all rock and roll. <laughs> so um is, is there anything new on the horizon? I mean, you said that you a lot of your time is spent just um, looking for ways to ensure consistency and, and, and be as efficient as possible and, you know, produce the product um, as efficiently and, and to the sort of standard as possible. Is there anything anything new sort of floating around in the world yeah, of strings? There's a few, there's a few, um, there's a few ideas that we've, yeah, we're working on at the moment, which are top secret. And if- All right. If I told you, I'd have to kill you. Right, so. okay. <laughs> it's a good job know. we're on Zoom then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you sure, you yeah. sure you don't want to risk it and give us some form of 942 <laughs> scoop here? You know, no, no. We, we, we're right at the infancy right. of, um, of this uh, you know, breakthrough development right. in uh, string manufacturing. Right. You'll, you'll have to come back and tell us when you... When, yeah. When, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, whatever happened to... We're, we're at NAM. I don't know, it must have been about five years ago, something like that. And you gave me a set of guitar strings and went, here, try these. Um, which were brilliant because I've got a Les Paul custom, a black Les Paul custom, <laughs> so it's black and gold. And you gave me a set of strings that were black and gold strings. Oh, yeah. yeah. That I put them yeah. on and it was like, yeah. this is the coolest they, looking thing. They they never sold. They never sold. Oh, really? Yeah, Nexus. Yeah. yeah I love those. Yeah. They were the black anodized wound strings. Yeah. The twenty four, thirty two, forty two, and they were the, the platinum plated uh, top three strings. Yeah, you haven't got so, any left. I was going to say, it seems like your audience <laughs> no. was somebody sort of with a bit of spare cash who was slightly shallow. So Jace, it was Jace is absolutely <laughs> your man, isn't he? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I was completely gobsmacked because I thought, like you did, you put those on a guitar and it looked stunning. Mm. But yeah, it just just shows that guitarists are a conservative bunch. Mm. Yeah, mm. I think so. That, that yeah, that's actually that, that and that. You know what? That is a long time ago. That that is longer than five years ago. Is it? Yeah, they come out in two thousand and nine. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> there you go. So, Honestly, every Nam just merges into. You know, it's just one big Nam show, as far as my memory's concerned. Maybe it's because <laughs> you were wearing the same T-shirt, Jace, <laughs> in two thousand and nine. Well. I mean, the truth of the matter is, it was probably because I spent the first ten years of Nam drinking Long Island iced teas. Yeah, almost that'd do singularly. it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, that, yeah, that'd do it. So, I mean, there's other stuff other than Rotosend that we should touch on because you're quite an interesting chap. I mean, I've got written down Saab. Saab. Um, yeah. And, and I think <laughs> this ties in quite nicely with your. Um, Re- reducing your packaging, you're recycling really old cars, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, when I get time, yeah. No, well, I, I love, I bought my first Saab for 60 quid uh, from a breaker's yard in 1985, and it had three wheels on it, 
by the time I drove it home, it had four. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and the clutch was stuck to the flywheel. But I went to this breaker's yard with a mate of mine, and uh, he was looking for some spare parts for his Triumph Herald. And I'm like, yeah, I'll come down there with you. It's a place called Paddock Wood near here. And um, in the corner of this breaker's yard was this dark green, like, bubble, like this round shape. Mm. And I'm like, wow, what a cool-looking car that is. I didn't know anything about them, but I asked the guy in the breaker's yard, so I said, um, are you selling it? And he said, well, uh, not really, he said, because I've got a guy coming next week that wants the back axle, and I've sold him the back axle, you know, and then I'm going to break the car up. And I said, well, if I buy the car, I want to, I want to restore it. I said, and he said, if you want to restore it, he said, I'd rather sell it to you than break it. I'd rather sell it to you as a going, mm. almost, almost going concern. <laughs> so I bought it and I, I loved it. And it was just, um, it was just, all my mates had Mark 1 Escorts. You know, we all had mates that had Mark 1 Escorts yeah, yeah. back then. So it was like, do you know what? Being like I am, I guess, it was just, I want something no one else has got. And I, that's how I ended up with the Saab. But, um, and then I drove it for a few months until various bits fell off it. And, uh, you know, I then decided, right, I'm going to restore it. So I, I had a go at rebuilding it. By that time, I bought a couple more just so I could have one to drive. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then I started getting into the older ones because this one I bought, the first car was 1972. And then I realised the older ones were like two strokes and mm. interesting, really interesting. And so yeah, that was how I got into Saabs, and I've I've still got three. I've still got that car, and I've still got two others, um, which I I love to bits. You know, they they're not huge. You know, they're not worth massive amounts of money, but they are from an engineering point of view. They're beautifully engineered and unique, and they pioneered a lot of stuff. You know, which ended up on other cars. You know. Is that the bit that speaks to you, the engineering side of it? It's just the shape of the car is just like, you know, until they were way ahead of the, the curve. In 1950, they had a car with a 0.30 drag coefficient, which is like, nowadays, that, that's considered good. They had it in 1950. You know. Dual circuit braking, which every car now has dual circuit braking, um, you know. It was stuff like that, heated seats. They come out with all this stuff that is now standard on every car. Mm. But they pioneered it, you know. So, interesting company. And uh, it was a shame, obviously, when they went out of business. Um, in, a, in a strange way, they were a bit like us, in a way, Rotosound. They pioneered a lot of stuff. They weren't the biggest car company, but they they were unique in that way, you know. Mm. Um, it, you know, when General Motors bought them, kind of their their appeal to me kind of went down a little bit you know yeah yeah hmm. so and, yeah, that's Saab's, yeah and you've released six solo albums in the last what 10 15 years 10 yeah 2013 so there's six albums on uh, on itunes um and yeah, I'm just, I'm basically just like you said in that email, sort of playing catch up on having a big long break from doing my music from the late 90s to 2009. Um, when I, I, all I thought about every day was uh, building string machines. And I, you know, by the time I'd had 10 years of that, I just, in fact, Kathy said to me, she said, why don't you get back into your music? And I'm like, yeah, maybe. And I tried to cobble all my old analog stuff back together. Um, Fostex 8-track and my Mackie mm. desk and my... Am, uh, what's, the, what's the computer? Amstrad? Atari. <laughs> Atari, yeah. And all that, all the discs, the floppy discs. And, um, and then it was like, well, like, you know, you can do it all now on a Mac, you know, with mm. interfaces and what have you. So I got that in 2009 started getting back into my music you know so which I've always really liked anyway I've always enjoyed the songwriting I'm a crap guitar player but I, I think uh, my strength is the songwriting you know so. yeah and, and they, they seem to um, th th there's a 
there's kind of like two strands that I think that runs through it that you've got like a bit of psychedelia that goes on which you know you mentioned Sid Barrett earlier which must come from that sort of side yeah but you've also got like punk but then you mentioned like stiff records and stuff like that earlier as well and and you seem to kind of like straddle both of those uh, and you've got a band as well now is it Soda Prism Soda Prism it's been around a couple of years yeah and it's more it's more acoustic um yeah, that's that's that band. You know, I play acoustic guitar in that. And then is and, there another new band as well that I've seen you've been rehearsing? Yeah, there's another kind of garage rock kind of punk band called The Next Agenda, which is, um, we actually got our first gig tonight. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, well, it's more like a, a jam night, but we've got a solo slot for half an hour. Yeah. And um, I've actually got together with a friend of mine who I've known for 25 years. He's a brilliant bass player and a friend of a friend introduced me to this drummer who's a brilliant drummer we've had six rehearsals and we're like ready to go so i say all original stuff but more the punk garage rock kind of stuff yeah so just having a bit of fun with that really just getting out there and playing and uh is it it just it's just nice to kind of obviously still music because that's you know that's the job but that's the life but actually you just step away and you're not thinking about you know winding strings and building machines and stuff like that so it's the full el- fun element of the job rather than the day-to-day sort of side of the job yeah because you know you know whatever type of music we like or whatever type of music we like playing or listening to um that's always going to be enjoyable and it's always going to be work is always going to be work i've you know i've written hundreds of songs probably like yourself and i just want to get out and play them and um a lot of acoustic stuff, which is quieter, is with Soda Prism and the more angsty stuff that, um, you know, I want to play, the shouty stuff, is with the, with the new band. So Excellent. So where, when are we getting the new records out? Well, we're trying to put together, we were in a studio last week rehearsing, and we, I'm trying to put together like a, a mini live EP, which will be um, uh, probably six or eight tracks depending on how many we feel have come out well enough mm. um so yeah we're, we're working on that i'm trying to next couple of months or a month maybe um as fitting all this stuff in you know but um you know what it's like it's um i'm lucky that i'm in an industry where we're in the music into music and i can also do my hobby um the two kind of mesh into one you know yeah It'd be wrong not to do it, wouldn't it? You know, but uh, I mean, obviously, we deal with loads of fantastic players and guitar play, guitar players and bass players. Uh, so this, for me, is just a hobby, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah. Have any of them helped out? Have any of them jumped onto any of the recordings? I've well, James Lomenzo, I guess. Um, I haven't really asked anybody to be honest. Um, I seem to have some, you know, good fans. Paul Gray and Captain Sensible of the Damned really like what I do. Um, I've got a support slot which I'm shooting for, which I won't tell you which band it's with, but um, if I get that, I'll be very pleased. This is with the, the punk band, so I'm I'm just um, finding my feet with that, really. You know, I was never really confident getting up there and singing, but um, a mate of mine who have known for years, he was like, nothing wrong with your voice. Get up and do it, you know. Songs are good. So it kind of pushed me to do it and just let go of any inhibitions that I had, mm. really. You know, it's the, that saying is that book, wasn't it? If not now, when? It's like... Yeah. Why am I putting off trying to get support with my favourite 70s punk band? Why? Why? You know, they can only say no. Yeah. But, you know, they could say yes. It could happen. I think it gets to a point, certainly certainly in life age where actually you don't really care if anybody says no you just ask anyway mm. you know and you're surprised I mean, when, when I got Paul Stanley to do this I didn't actually expect him to say yes you know but it didn't really bother me trying to get no. him to say yes and you know and then when, it and came, when you did that and it was successful then you, it opens the doors to saying well I'll ask so and so now and mm. they could say yes well, well, we weren't going to ask you, Jason, but but once we once Paul Stanley had been on, we thought, right, we'll pitch for we'll pitch for Jason Roadstone now. 
Uh, that's well, how it. That's yeah. how it. That's how it works out. You caught me on a good yeah. day. So, uh, well, look, I think that's a lovely place to finish, isn't it? To bring it all back yeah. round to the music, which is what it, you know, yeah. where, where it should all yeah. tie up. So, uh, so thanks, well, thanks a lot for finding the. No, thank you for having me. The time. Um, it's been a pleasure. I mean, um, you know, Jason and I go back a long way. Anyway, so we're always talking about all this stuff on air or off air or wherever in the bar. <laughs> um, we all share a lot of similar passions. And, uh, you know, we've always enjoyed doing the shows, working with you guys, and hopefully that will come back with a vengeance now. Um, Fingers crossed. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I'm having a half day today, so um, that's, why I've, that's why I couldn't do this afternoon. <laughs> My bass player's coming over to do some backing vocals, so... Oh, well, that's way more important than doing... Priorities, priorities you know, string-making, backing vocals. Rock and roll. Well, thank, no, yeah. literally, thanks yeah. a lot. And obviously, we need to just quickly shout out and say our thanks to Focusrite as well uh, for continuing to support the podcast, which they do. Um, so thanks very much to the Focusrite folks uh, for everything as per normal. And, uh, and we'll, see you, uh, we'll see you again in the coming weeks, I guess, Jase. Absolutely. I just want to say quickly a big thank you to my wife as well, who's been a rock. So. Say hello to Cathy for me. I will, yeah. And um, you guys take care. Yeah. All right, you know, take care. Good, good Cheers, to see Cheers. you. Bye. Cheers. Cheers, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. If you've enjoyed the show, then please remember to hit the subscribe button and share with other like-minded souls. For more information about 9 to 42, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the Guitar Show UK. This has been an A Short Stories production. Hold up. 